0: Do the reading of the quad city times for today tuesday january 30th 2024 all material heard on iris is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities your readers today are dale finnegan and doug kretzinger and now here's doug with our first story
1: and uh, good morning quad cities working to fill an entire winter's worth of potholes is a fr- front page story written by sarah watson Potholes are popping up earlier and more frequently than usual in the Quad Cities this year, a result of heavy snowfall and wild temperature swings in a short period of time. On Wednesday last week, two tire rims, one of them chipped, lay in the snow piles alongside Harrison Street near Vanderveer Park and close to potholes the size of sleds in the far left lane. Those potholes have since been filled by Davenport's Public Works crews, which have been busy for the past week fixing streets, strained by the temperature swings earlier this month. This year we have seen a lot more potholes than usual this early in the year, Davenport Public Works Director Nicole Gleason wrote in an email. She went on, With the actual temperature swinging from, 10, uh, from minus 10 back up to 30 in a very short time, This caused a lot of stress on roadways everywhere in the region. Rock Island Public Works Director Mike Bartels said the city is having to address an entire winter's worth of potholes at one time. We received 25 inches of snow followed by extreme cold, rain, and above freezing temperatures all within a few weeks' time, Bartels wrote in an email. Where compared to the past two years, we received close to the same amount of snow for the entire winter seasons. So we're having to address an entire winter's worth of potholes at one time. The amount of potholes is consistent with previous years. It's just that they appeared so quickly and all at once. Bettendorf Public Works Director Brian Schmidt said its department has not seen any more potholes than in a typical year. In Moline, Municipal Services Operations Manager Graeme Jewell said potholes may be slightly worse because of the duration of the snow event and plows being on the streets for an extended amount of time, but that it's pretty normal to have an influx of potholes following a snow event. So why do potholes happen? Potholes are mostly caused by moisture getting into or underneath pavement, according to the Iowa Department of Transportation. During freeze and thaw cycles, the subsurface expands and contracts and moisture causes the asphalt or concrete to shift, buckle, or break. When vehicles drive over these weakened areas, potholes form. In Davenport, City Street repair crews typically fill 60,000 to 70,000 potholes each year on the City's 1,300 lane miles of streets, according to its website. During the winter months, Repair crews typically have to use cold-mixed asphalt to patch potholes. It's a temporary fix for cold weather until temperatures warm above freezing and hot-mixed asphalt can be used. Asphalt plants don't run when temperatures are below freezing, Gleason said, and typically don't reopen until sustained temperatures reach above 32 degrees for several weeks. The City of Davenport, however, has been making its own hot asphalt mix, Gleason said, because of the fair weather temperatures this week. Moline and Rock Island are using the cold patch asphalt, according to their public work staffs. In Rock Island, crews are repairing potholes by removing loose debris, applying an all-weather UPM cold mix asphalt, and compacting it with a hand tamper, Bartos said. The cold mix is a temporary fix until more permanent repairs can be made in the spring. Bettendorf also uses UPM cold mix asphalt, Schmidt said, the surface level of which cures immediately, meaning that traffic does not have to be delayed over the spot. How to report potholes? Well, Davenport, Rock Island, and Bettendorf all use a reporting program called C-Click Fix. Residents can report the the location of things that need fixing, commonly potholes at this time of year, along with a short description and optional photo upload. In Moline, residents can make uh, reports of potholes and needed street maintenance, among other concerns, at its website, Moline, uh, which is il.us forward slash 484 forward slash resident hyphen request otherwise residents can call public works departments bettendorf number 563-344-4055 davenport 563-326-7923 moline 309-524-2400 rock island 309-732-2200 scott county 563-326-8640. 563-326-8640. Water main breaks. And since the start of the year, Iowa American Water has had 35 water main breaks in the Quad Cities and Clinton, which is about twice the number of water main breaks during the same period in 2013, 17, which was 17. Iowa American Water spokesperson Lisa Reason wrote in an, att- an email, in January 2022, there were 60 main breaks total in the Quad Cities and Clinton. While we never know for sure exactly what causes a water main break, many times weather plays a big role, Reason or Rison said, water mains are not very flexible. So in the winter, when frost is going deeper into the ground, and spring, when the frost is thawing, the ground shifts, which causes the pipes to shift. If there's a weak spot in a water main, it's likely going to break. When a water main breaks, crews repair the water main under pressure whenever possible, she said. They can also reroute water flow during repairs to keep service, but sometimes it's not possible, and Iowa American notifies customers in advance when possible.
0: I'm going to skip to the page 3 local section of the Quad City Times now and read you this article about what's going on with the um, uh, Iowa Congress. Dems target Eastern Iowa race. Bohanna aims to flip district to blue. This is written by Tom Barton. National Democrats have targeted an Eastern Iowa congressional district in their quest to regain control of the US House in this fall's elections. The campaign arm of U.S. House Democrats announced Monday that Iowa City congressional candidate Christina Bohannon has been named to its Red to Blue, in quotes, program that works to help Democrats running against Republican incumbents flip control of competitive districts. The announcement was first reported by NBC News. Bohannon is among House Democrats' first slate of 17 candidates given the stamp of approval from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, sending a signal to donors and activists about whom they see as best positioned to win in critical districts. Also named to the list is Lannon Bakam, a Democrat running for Congress in Iowa's third congressional district, which is represented by Republican U.S. Representative Zach Nunn of Bondurant. He is serving in his first term and narrowly defeated Democratic incumbent Cindy Cindy Axney in 2022 to win the seat that has flipped in two of the last three elections. Melissa Vine, a Des Moines nonprofit leader, also is running in that Democratic primary. House Republicans control a razor-thin majority of the chamber, holding 219 seats to Democrats' 213. The Democrats' Red to Blue program arms the party's top-tier candidates with organizational and fundraising support, and the National Committee provides strategic guidance, staff resources, candidate training, and more. Bohannon, a University of Iowa law professor and former state representative, is making her second bid for Iowa's first congressional district, which covers 20 counties in southeast Iowa, including Johnson County. She is challenging Republican U.S. Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks of Ottumwa. Bohannon lost by nearly seven percentage points, or more than 20,000 votes, to Miller-Meeks in 2022 who won re-election to a second term in November after winning her first election by the slimmest of margins, which was six votes, over Democrat Rita Hart in 2020. Bohannon and the DCCC say they plan to highlight Miller-Meeks' record against abortion rights, including support of a nationwide abortion ban. Miller-Meeks has said she supports a national 15-week ban on abortion with exceptions for rape, incest, and life of the mother. She also co-sponsored the Life at Conception Act, which would criminalize abortion but would not allow the woman having the procedure to be prosecuted. It has no exceptions for rape, incest, or the woman's life. As a doctor, I believe that every life is precious and should be protected. Miller-Meeks said in a video posted to X, formerly Twitter, earlier this month. Speaking to reporters in August following a town hall in Iowa where she fielded questions about women's reproductive rights, she criticized Democrats who said she voted for a bill that would legalize abortion up until birth. Shortly before the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, which provided a federally protected right to abortion, Democrats in Congress introduced a bill that would allow abortion after a fetus is viable outside the womb in cases where the patient's life or health is at risk. Republicans claim that the bill would allow abortions on demand, in quotes, up to the moment of birth. Democrats counter that's not what they support and that such a scenario is exceedingly rare. Bohannon told the Gazette she supports a return to Roe v. Wade. She says, I believe that we need to put Roe v. Wade back into federal law where it was before the Supreme Court overruled it. You know, Roe v. Wade was the compromise. It was the balance. It recognized a right to abortion and recognized that women need to have the freedom and the privacy to make some of the most difficult and personal decisions that anyone will ever have to make. But it also did allow the state to regulate abortion as the pregnancy progresses, and it is a balanced approach. It was the compromise. We need to return to that. I support Roe. No more, no less. End quote. Bohannon also has pledged to make passing a farm bill among her top priorities if elected to represent Iowa in Congress. She held a roundtable discussion last week in Walcott with a dozen farmers, rural landowners, and a former state USDA official. Lawmakers in Washington failed to pass a farm bill before the end of the year. Instead, Congress extended the former bill for an additional year. Bohannon's announced raising more than $650,000 in the most recent fundraising quarter, bringing her total contributions to $1.3 million since she launched her bid in August. Bohannon's campaign said 81% of her contributors were from Iowa. According to most recent Federal Election Commission filings, Miller-Meeks raised more than $1.8 million this election cycle and had nearly $1.4 million cash on hand as of the end of September. She had not yet announced her campaign donations for the final fundraising quarter of 2023.
1: Also in the local section of today's paper, Quad City Education News. Education news from around the QC, local high school student invited to Washington DC as part of a national coding competition is what it's about. Moline High School junior Akhil Kumar is the winner of the 2023 Congressional App Challenge for Illinois' 17th Congressional District Congressman Eric Sorensen has announced. Kumar won with his app FoodFlow, which connects restaurants that have excess food to nonprofits and food banks to reduce waste and feed the hungry. Quote, Being born to immigrant parents who really taught me the value of each meal, knowing that I am able to, through my passion of coding, help others and those in need who don't often have access to those healthy meals, it really means a lot to me. Quote, Kumar is the first winner of the competition for the 17th Congressional District to be selected by Sorensen. As part of the competition, he will be invited to Washington, D.C. to connect with other winners from around the nation. The Congressional App Challenge is a national competition established by Congress in 2013 for middle and high school students to create their own software applications and gain experience with computer coding. To learn more about the Congressional App Challenge, You can visit uh, www.congresson, I'll say it again, congress, I-O-N-A-L-A-P, hyphen, I'm not going to say it, forget that, I'm going to screw it up, it's it's not clear to me, so I'm not going to say it. Anyway, move on. The Hoover Presidential Foundation will award over $60,000 in scholarships to Iowa students this year through the 27th Annual Herbert Hoover Uncommon Student Award. The scholarship program for Iowa high school juniors will choose as many as 15 students to receive a $1,500 scholarship. In addition, four $10,000 scholarships will be awarded for study at an accredited two- or four-year college or university anywhere in the United States. Applicants submit a proposal for a project which relates to former President Hoover Hoover, who was known as a great humanitarian, entrepreneur, engineer, and loved technology and the environment. Students are not evaluated on the basis of grades, test scores, essays, or financial need. Instead, students are selected based on the stated project goal and detailed plans to reach that goal. Finalists spend a weekend in West Branch during the summer between their junior and senior year. And during that time, they receive mentoring and assistance developing the projects. Time is also spent behind the scenes at the Hoover Presidential Library and Museum to help students become more familiar with Hoover's ideals regarding humanitarianism and public service. In November of their senior year, finalists make presentations about the projects at the library. At that time, each student receives a $1,500 scholarship and four are chosen to receive the $10,000 scholarships. The deadline to submit an application is April 1, 2024. Information and applications may be found at uncommonstudent.org. WIU slash Quad Cities welcomes new chemistry faculty member. Western Illinois University has announced a chemistry professor. Garima Mishra has joined the faculty to spearhead the inaugural offering of chemistry courses on the Quad Cities campus. Dr. Mishra's role is pivotal in the university's strategic plan to expand STEM courses offerings in support of engineering programs on the Quad Cities campus. Mishra received her doctorate degree in polymer chemistry from Harcourt Butler Technology Technological University, India, in 2007. She previously worked as a scientist at Agarkar Research Institute in India and later joined the corporation, Halliburton, working as a senior scientist in petrochemicals. Additionally, during a short stay in the Quad Cities in 2015, Mishra taught introduction to chemistry at Black Hawk College in Moline. And students can explore new ideas at Calm University in February. Blackhawk Com- College will offer students the opportunity to explore new ideas and engage in lively discussions this February during Calm University. Calm University features a series of Sunday afternoon seminars taught by local experts in arts humanities, personal enrichment, regional studies, and theology spirituality. The friendly learning atmosphere has no exams or papers to write. Most of the classes will be offered in person at the Quad Cities campus in Moline with three classes offered virtually. Some of the classes offered include American Sign Language, Basic Spanish, beginning crocheting, Can, create at, can Creativity Save the World, Exploring the gifts of Celtic spirituality, introduction to quilting, or I'm sorry, quilling, life and times of the American cemetery, mindfulness and landscape photography, navigating the digital world, positive psychology, Rock Island County. Wow, there's a lot there. Probably something you could find. Rock Island County, transformation to settled land and sketch journaling wow participants can select one class that will meet 2 to 4 p.m. on Sundays from 4 to 20 from February 4 to 25 cost is $40 for more information you can visit bhc.edu/cu or better yet, call 309-796-8223 if you're interested And finally, Autism Self Advocacy Network donates to Western Illinois University. The Autism Self Advocacy Network, ASAN, has donated a wide range of books aimed at enhancing the sensory experience for individuals with autism to the sensory programs, rather rooms, on both of Western Illinois University campuses. Alongside the book donation access to ASAN's ASAN's resource library, will be granted, providing valuable technical reports, self-advocacy, curriculum, and additional informative, informative materials. As part of this initiative, books will be allocated for use in sensory rooms and virtual sensorium. The selection of books covers a variety of topics to cater to diverse preferences and interests within the autism community. ASAN, a a prominent advocate for autism self-advocacy, envisions a world where all individuals on the autism spectrum have the right to decide their own destinies. The organization works tirelessly to empower individuals with autism, promoting acceptance, inclusion, and understanding. For more information on the sensory rooms and virtual sensorium, you may email T C A S E Y L A F R A N C E at gmail.com.
0: Here's a couple short articles from the local page. Officials say Boline duplex fire was set intentionally. This is written by Thomas Geyer. The Moline Fire Department has classified a fire at a vacant duplex on Sunday as an arson. A firefighter who suffered minor injuries fighting the fire was treated at the scene and returned to duty. According to a news release issued by the Moline Fire Department, At 3.24 p.m. Sunday, firefighters responded to 2415 Fourth Avenue after smoke was reported coming from the home. Upon arrival, firefighters found light smoke coming from the second floor. Firefighters went into the home to fight the blaze and found multiple fires in different areas of the duplex. The fire extended into the walls and spread into the attic. The fire was controlled in about an hour. No neighboring properties were affected. Moline firefighters were assisted at the scene by firefighters from Rock Island, Rock Island Arsenal, and East Moline. Moline Police, Moline Second Alarmers, Mid American Energy, and Blaze Restoration also provided support. The Moline Fire Department's Fire Prevention and Investigation Bureau is conducting the investigation... The fire is being classified as as intentional, and anyone with information is asked to call the Moline Fire Department at 309-524-2266. Also written by Thomas Geyer, man suffers injuries in Saturday shooting. Police say not a random act of violence. Davenport police are investigating a shooting that occurred early Sunday in which a man suffered life-threatening injuries. The shooting occurred at about 4.15 a.m. in the 100 block of East 12th Street. Davenport police, firefighters, and medic EMS responded to the scene after a report was issued of shots fired with a victim. The man was taken to Genesis Medical Center East in Davenport with what police are describing as life-threatening injuries. Police said it was not a random act of violence. Anyone with information about this incident is asked to call the Davenport Police Department at 3 i 563-326-6125 or submit an anonymous tip to QC Crime Stoppers by visiting the website qccrimestoppers.com or downloading the P3 Tips app. The shooting remains under investigation by the De- Davenport Police Department. Okay,
1: uh, 2024 Ragbri route will go south, written by Peggy Cenzarino, and the dateline is Des Moines. For you Ragbri fans, the route for the 2024 version of the Register's annual Great Bicycle Ride across Iowa will be taken a Southerly Turn this summer. According to an announcement Saturday night at the Iowa Events Center, the 51st annual ride will begin in Glenwood, Iowa on Cag Creek, Missouri River Tributary, and end in Burlington on the Mississippi River. Saturday's ragbri route reveal also named the overnight stops, which will include Red Oak, Atlantic, Winterset, Knoxville, Ottumwa, and Mount Pleasant. It's a small-town heavy route, with only Ottumwa and Burlington having more than 10,000 residents. Rag Bry 2024 will take place from Sunday, July 21, through Saturday, July 27. The route crossing Iowa will total 424 miles, one of the shortest routes on record. Last year's route started in Sioux City, ended in Davenport. Crowd peaked on the fourth day of the ride last year between Ames and Des Moines, with an estimated 60,000 people. Uh, let's see, page Organizations, organizers are expecting attendance this year to roughly equal or slightly surpass the 2022. On the first leg of that year's ride an estimated 30,000 riders including unregistered ones made the journey from Sergeant Bluff to Ida Grove. This year's route will have 18,737 feet of climb, quite a bit more than last year's 16,549 feet of climb. It will be far from the hilliest of Ragbury on record. And there's going to be a lot of hills. I can't guess that enough. Ragbury ride director Matt Phippen said in a statement, if you ride your bicycle and train, you're going to be in a good spot. The route and roads, the route and roads the ride will travel are still being finalized. Dale, are you going on that ride? Uh, I was going to move on to another story here just for a second.
0: Yeah, I'll go ahead and take the, um, the the food one, Doug. I know you're not usually a fan of doing those. <laughs> this, uh, Yeah, before we get to the obituaries, I think we have time to read this. This is Gannon Hannevold's Best Thing I Ate This Week article, entitled Hawaiian Roast Beef Crepe at Le Mekong. And he writes, I have no clue why I love sour cream and onion chips. I don't particularly enjoy either flavor. Onions are fine on a burger or diced into a salsa, But on their own, they're generally not for me. I feel the same way about sour cream, an okay addition in small quantities in a burrito or a chipotle bowl, but usually off-putting. Who wants their lactose to be described as sour? But together, they're fantastic, and I don't mean just as a processed, borderline-medicated chip dust. Sour cream and a bit of onion powder makes for a good dip, too. How is that possible? How can two taste bud wrongs make a taste bud right? I don't quite have the answers, but I do have another example now, courtesy of Le Mekong in Moline. The Vietnamese spot is open as a crepe corner for breakfast and lunch and a noodle spot for dinner. Thanks to a reader recommendation, I stopped in on a quiet Sunday morning. At a table by the window, I pondered my order. Which of the 17 savory crepes on the menu would be for me? The kind, soft-spoken waiter noticed my indecision and leaned over. Try the number 16, he said. The dish, Hawaiian Roast Beef Crepe. I eyed the ingredients. Cheddar, cheddar Jack, spinach, cherry tomatoes, roast beef, bacon, pickles, crumbled blue cheese, and a spicy pineapple glaze. A lot there, I thought. I love roast beef, bacon, pickles, and spinach, but the rest of the list gave me some hesitancy. I've got an inherent dislike of blue cheese. It tastes like soap to me, the way cilantro does for many. Cherry tomatoes typically aren't my jam either, and as an anti-pineapple-on-pizza delegate, you won't find savory-sweet-pineapple combos in my repertoire. But I trusted the recommendation, skeptical but cautiously optimistic. It turns out that we have another sour cream and onion paradox on our hands because that monster of a crepe was delicious. This column may be about the best thing I the best thing I ate this week, but this was probably one of the best I've eaten all year. The melted cheddar jack clings to the soft crepe, giving the whole exterior a gooey texture. The tangy pineapple, the pineapple glaze, has an appropriate amount of kick, only amplified by the sweetness of the cherry tomatoes. The cherry on top is, well, the bacon on top, a double dosage of meat that tastes even better when coated in the sweet glaze. For dessert, I ordered the lemon sugar crepe, A steal if you're looking for a sweet treat and somehow even better than my savory crepe. Most often, my gripe with lemon-flavored sweets has to do with the blandness of artificial lemon flavoring. But with this crepe, filled with real lemon juice and dusted with powdered sugar, the flavor was more akin to lefse, a staple dessert I've grown to love with my family's Polish-Catholic roots. The price was $12.50. The Hawaiian roast beef crepe is the priciest of the savory options on the Le Mekong menu, but it's also the most filling. Go big or go home, if you ask me. The sweet crepes are a bit more affordable, ranging from $5.50 to $9.50. For a small upcharge, you can also get each crepe as a galette, an alternative version of a crepe made with buckwheat flour. Le Mekong is located in downtown Moline within comfortable walking distance to its landmarks like Black Box Theater, Vibrant Arena, and John Deere Pavilion. You can find it at 1606 Fifth Avenue. The Crepe Corner is open daily is open only on the weekends with 9 AM to 1 PM hours on Friday and Saturday, 9 AM to 130 PM on Sunday. They're also open for dinner with a different menu Tuesday through Saturday from 4.30 to 9. The ambiance, quiet and wholesome. It was jarringly quiet on my visit to Le Mekong this weekend. At 11 a.m. on Sunday, when many brunch spots would be dealing with a rush, we were one of just a few busy tables. Maybe the secret's not out yet, but it should be. Somewhat paradoxically though, the quietness does add to the ambiance. With jazz playing slowly through the speakers and natural light filling the room, this is a perfect spot for a gentle weekend-date outing. It'd also be a great place to dine alone, with a good book or a magazine as your company. The interior decor is neat and tasteful, with lights hanging from the ceiling and art-lining the walls. There are also cute little knickknacks in each nook and cranny. Including my personal favorite, a small statue of two toads on the windowsill, arm around one another, taking in the view on 16th Street. I'll be back for more at Le Mekong, where it seems like I can't go wrong on the menu, even when my flavor skepticism suggests otherwise. And you are listening to the Quad City Times on Iris, the Iowa radio reading. Information service for the blind. And now it's time for obituaries.
1: Richard A. Mulvania, LeClaire, 67, died on Sunday, January 28th at the Clarissa Cook Hospice House. Service to celebrate his life will be held at 2 p.m. on Wednesday, the 21st or 31st of January at McGinnis Chambers Funeral Home in Bettendorf. Burial will follow at Glendale Cemetery in LeClaire. Visitation is from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Wednesday. That would be hmm, today. No, tomorrow at the funeral home. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to the American Cancer Society, the Scott County Humane Society, or First Presbyterian Church of LeClaire. After the burial, the family invites you to a celebration of life from 4 to 6 p.m. at the Mississippi River Distilling Company Celebration Center in LeClaire. Richard was born in Davenport, April 11, 1956, the son of Clarence and Iola, Nicol Mulvania, and was a graduate of Pleasant Valley High School on June 3 of 78. He was united in marriage to Debbie Lively in Princeton, Iowa. He retired from the Alcoa Company several years ago after 40 years of service. Richard was an avid golfer who also enjoyed playing softball, volleyball, bowling and loved coaching his son's baseball teams he was a loving husband dad and papa and dearly loved his dogs rosie and foxy those left to honor his memory include his wife debbie his children megan spouse david cervantes of fort myers florida matt spouse amanda mulvania of melbourne florida and barry spouse jenny Mulvania of Davenport. His grandchildren, Madison, Lola, Cole, Max, Jet, and Lily. His sisters, Shirley, spouse Fred Harris of Bettendorf, Joyce, spouse Jean Marsan of LeClaire, and Donna Perman of Wheatland, Iowa. Many other relatives and wonderful friends. He was preceded in death by his brothers, Ken, in 2011, John in 1998, and by his parents. Condolences may be expressed to the family by viewing his obituary at McGinnis, Chapers.com Lynn M. Johnson, Davenport, passed away Friday, January 26th at the age of 67 after a three-year fight with cancer. She was a staunch advocate for doing the right thing, whether it involved children in school, your pet, or interacting with family and friends. Lynn always did the right thing and had the rare gift of knowing how to listen and when to speak. We will miss her quick wit, her friendship, and her counsel. She was preceded in death by her parents, Lester, Humpy, and Eileen Humphreys. She is survived by her husband, Eric, two sons, Aaron and Ethan, two sisters, Laureen Chavert of Aiken, South Carolina, and Lisa, spouse Mike Huskenfeld of Clinton, her uncle and aunt, Gail and Diana Reiner of Clinton, as well as several cousins, nieces, and nephews. Lynn always felt how she makes other people feel was the most important thing and was comfortable when she was the focus of attention. Rather was uncomfortable when she was the focus of attention. So it should be no surprise that Lynn requested that there be no visitation, funeral, or celebration of life service. Memorials may be made to the family to be split between the American Cancer Society Human Society of Scott County, and medical expenses, the Snell Zorning Funeral Homes and Crematory are assisting the family. And here are some pending ones. Kathleen McKinney is 67, of Blue Cross, Iowa, passed away Thursday, January 25. Arrangements are pending at Mississippi Valley Cremation and Direct Burial in Moline. Dariush Asade, 81, of Bettendorf, Iowa, passed away Friday the 26th at Trinity Unity Point Health. In Bettendorf, arrangements are pending with McGinnis Chambers Bettendorf. Mary L. Gomez, 94, of Moline, passed away Friday. Uh, Cedar Hurst of Moline, arrangements are pending at the Van Hoe Funeral Home in East Moline. Daph- Daphne Alexander, 79, of Davenport, passed away Saturday the 27th at home. Arrangements are pending with McGinnis Chambers in Bettendorf. Rafael Ramirez, Ramirez, 87 of Moline, passed away Friday, January 26th, University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Arrangements are pending at Trimble Funeral Home and Crematory in Moline. Doris Coffey, 85, Coal Valley, Illinois, passed away Sunday, the 27th of January, allure of Knox County, Galesburg, Illinois. Arrangements are pending at Trimble Funeral Home, Coal Valley, Stephen Herring, 55, Moline, Illinois, passed away Wednesday, January 24, at home. Arrangements are pending at Tribble Funeral Home and Crematory. Sharon Norin, 83, of Moline, passed away Friday, January 26, at Brickford of Moline. Cremation will be directed by Cremation Society of the Quad Cities. Christina Acosta, 61, Davenport, Iowa, passed away Friday, January 26, Unity Point, Trinity, Bettendorf. Arrangements are pending at Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home in Davenport. Joseph Charlie, 86, or rather 61, Mankata, Maquoketa, Iowa, passed away Thursday, January 25, at home. Arrangements are pending at Carson Celebration of Life Center in Makokata. Judy Dixon, 68, at Rock Island, passed away Tuesday at Unity Point Health Trinity, Rock Island. Arrangements are pending at whelan Presley Funeral Home and Crematory of Rock Island. Maurice Reber, 92 of Bettendorf, passed away Saturday, January 27 at the Call Funeral Home, at the Call Home, Davenport. Arrangements are pending at McGinnis Chambers Funeral Home in Bettendorf. Carl, uh, Catherine Shores, 45, Davenport, passed away Monday, January 29. Arrangements are pending at Trimble Funeral Home and Crematory. Brenda Cole, 67, DeWitt, Iowa, formerly of Davenport, passed away Monday, January 29. Harmony, Utica Ridge, Davenport, cremation will be directed by Cremation Side of the Quad Cities. Catherine Coke, Kathleen Coke, 46 of Appleton, Wisconsin, passed away Sunday, the 28th of January, at Ascension Columbia St. Mary's Hospital in Milwaukee. Uh, arrangements are pending at Halligan McCabe freeze Funeral Home downtown. And our final one today is Ward T. Robertson, 78 of Rock Island, Illinois, passed away Sunday, January 28th, uh, at home. Arrangements are pending at the whelan Presley Funeral Home and Crematory, Milan.
0: We're going to turn now to the opinion page of the Quad City Times. There is a political cartoon here. It is a drawing by Steve Breen. And in it you can see a large man, which appears to be Trump. And he takes up a... Um, uh, uh, he's very tall in the picture. Um, you can't see his face. Um, he is on the far right side of the, of the drawing, held back with ropes by two much, much smaller uh, people. One of them is a woman drawn as Nikki Haley, and one of them is a woman drawn as Lady Liberty with the word courts um, written on her um, robe. And she's blindfolded like Lady Liberty. But anyways, those two women um, are very stressfully holding back the Trump figure with two ropes as he is marching steadily forward in the right hand side of the drawing. And I'm going to move down to the bottom of the page and read um, this editorial written by Rachel, Rachel Gressler, who is a research fellow in economics, budget and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. The title of her editorial is 64 Million Americans Risk Losing Work Under Labor Rule. Whether working full-time for themselves or part-time as contractors, picking up occasional gig work, or having a side hustle, an estimated 64 million Americans performed some sort of independent work in 2023. These aren't just accountants or Uber drivers. They're IT consultants, makeup artists, musicians, interpreters, fitness instructors, copy editors, and truck drivers. But now, their ability to be their own boss is in jeopardy. A Department of Labor rule, scheduled to take effect March 11th, would significantly restrict the right to work as an independent contractor instead of being treated as an employee. Proponents of the rule argue that workers who aren't formal employees won't be protected by labor laws regulating things such as minimum wage, work hours, and unemployment insurance. They assume the regulation will simply shift contractors to employee status without significant changes in their work or lifestyles. But California shows it doesn't work that way. The Golden State passed a similar law, AB 5, significantly restricting independent contracting. It took effect in January of 2020 and has proved so unpopular and damaging that the state has now exempted more than 100 professions from the law and voters overturned its application to ride-sharing and delivery services via a statewide referendum. Yet even the watered-down restrictions are wreaking havoc among workers in the state. The group, Freelancers Against AB5, Compiled a list of more than 600 professions that have been negatively affected by independent contracting restrictions. Karen Anderson, the founder of Freelancers Against AB5, testified to federal lawmakers about children's theaters and nonprofit youth sports club closing their doors, sign language interpreters unable to provide ADA mandated services to the deaf and professionals having to move out of state to maintain their livelihoods. One Californian hurt by AB5 is Monica Wyman, a stay-at-home mom who started her own floral business in 2009. She hired friends, fellow moms who wanted flexible work, as contractors for events like weddings. After AB5, Wyman was unable to hire contract help including people to fill in for her when she was battling cancer. Evidence of AB5's harmful effect is not just anecdotal. New research by a group of economists at the Mercatus Center shows California's independent contracting restrictions are significantly damaging California's workforce. Their analysis found that AB5 reduced self-employment by 10.5% in California, Despite the law's intent to push more people into traditional employment, AB5 led to a 4.4% drop in overall employment. Job losses were most severe, a 27.9% drop in self-employment, among professions in which self-employment is more common. The administration's independent contractor rule is likely to have similar effects, devastating self-employment and cutting overall employment as well. The nation can't afford that. Why does this rule eliminate so many jobs? Because being an employee, including a prescribed schedule and reporting to a boss, isn't possible for everyone. Freelancing in America reports that more than freelancing, freelancing in America, I guess that's a Group, reports that more than half of independent workers surveyed say they can't work for a traditional employer because of their caregiving duties or their personal health conditions. Congress should protect independent workers and provide much-needed clarity on the issue by passing a law, such as the 21st Century Worker Act, which establishes a bright-line test to determine who is an employee and who is an independent contractor. Instead of trying to, quote, protect workers by pushing them into employment terms they don't want or can't perform, policymakers should protect workers' rights to pursue the type of work and compensation that is best for them. Again, that opinion was written by Rachel Gresler.
1: I'm going to read this opinion here on the page. Uh, This one's called, If You Care About the GOP, Vote for Big Defeat This Fall. It's written by Eugene Robinson, who writes for the Washington Post. Anyone who genuinely cares about the future of the Republican Party, and you should if you care about strengthening democracy, has only one option in November. Vote to destroy the party to save it. I care about the GOP. No one has ever mistaken me for a conservative but our democracy functions best when there is healthy, fact-based competition between liberal and conservative views. But now we have the Democratic Party on one side and the Republican dumpster fire on the other. The GOP is a cult, held in thrall by an unstable bully and would-be authoritarian. The GOP is held captive by a man who sent armed insurrectionists to the Capitol in a violent attempt to overturn this his defeat in a free and fair election. He punishes any perceived disloyalty. At the 2020 Republican National Convention, the GOP didn't even offer a party platform. Instead, it simply affirmed its strong support for President Donald Trump and his America First agenda, whatever that might be at any given moment. The nation would be foolish at this point to expect Republicans to rise up and free themselves. Look at how the congressional negotiations over border security in Ukraine aid have changed since Trump's victory in the GOP presidential primary in New Hampshire. GOP senators, including Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican of Kentucky, were optimistic that the package would swiftly be approved by the Senate. But last week, McConnell told a closed-door meeting of his caucus that there might no longer be a path forward for the bill because Trump opposes any remedy for the border crisis that might make President Joe Biden look good. This is insanity. Democrats are offering something Republicans have wanted for years and might never be offered again. Tougher border security without a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants already in the country, including DREAMers. But dear leader Trump says no, and suddenly GOP senators are afraid to say yes. Republicans in Congress clearly will not free their party, and it looks doubtful that the GOP base has any intention of breaking the chains that bind it. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley finished a strong second in New Hampshire, becoming the anti-Trump by default. But the next contested primary is a month away, and it is in her home state, which might not feel very welcoming. For four long weeks, she will have to survive withering personal attacks from Trump and calls from powerful Republicans to drop out of the race in the name of party unity. And then, if she makes it to the February 24, she will need a miracle. The Real Clear Politics average of polls in South Carolina shows Trump with a 30 point lead. Those surveys were taken before the other GOP candidates dropped out, so Haley can be expected to narrow the gap. But virtually all of the state's Republicans uh, elected officials have fallen in line behind Trump, including Senator Tim Scott, whom Haley first appointed to the Senate in 2013 when she was governor, and who obsequiously told Trump, I just love you during Trump's New Hampshire victory speech. It is also wrong to expect the justice system to come to the party's rescue. It is possible that one or two of the criminal cases against Trump could end in conviction or acquittal before November, but that seems increasingly unlikely. And even if the former president is a felon, I find it hard to imagine his party throwing him overboard. What can save the GOP from itself? Defeat, crushing unambiguous defeat. Our political parties reform and reconstitute themselves after being soundly rebuked by the voters. After the disaster of President Richard Nixon's resignation and the aimlessness of the Gerald Ford administration, Republicans regrouped and became the party of Ronald Reagan. His policies were not those I agreed with, but they were coherent and could be negotiated with. After Jimmy Carter, Walter Mondale, and Michael Dukakis lost successive presidential elections, their party turned to Bill Clinton and the new Democrats whose ideas were a break with the past, and again, held together as an ideology. If you want the GOP to be a serious conservative political party and not a MAGA cult, send Republicans into the wilderness. Vote for Biden. Take away Republicans' control of the House. Give Democrats a bigger majority in the Senate. Vote Republican officials out of state houses, city halls, and school boards. Make the metaphorical ashes from which a new GOP can rise. Written by Eugene Robinson for The Washington Post.
0: I'm going to go ahead and move on to sports. At the top of the sports page today is an article written by Tom Johnston about Mac basketball. Mac boys' race could clear up this week or get even crazier. Up to this point, the Mississippi Athletic Conference boys' basketball race has been nothing short of a jumbled mess. North Scott so far has lived up to the preseason hype as the team to beat in the league. The 13-2 Lancers are 11-1 and one in the MAC, along in MAC action, and enter this week with a two-game lead. Behind coach Dave McLaughlin's Lancers, it has been a free-for-all, with teams taking turns beating up on each other. This week, though, will go a long way to figuring out what the final three weeks will hold. The Lancers have two road games, today at Pleasant, Tuesday at Pleasant Valley, which is today, and Friday at Bettendorf. Coach Steve Hillman's Spartans will be trying to bounce back from Friday's tough overtime loss at Davenport West, and the Bulldogs could be riding the excitement of Saturday's throttling of the of the 11 and 4 Falcons in a makeup game at VHS. Typical of the way the boys race has gone, Bettendorf threw a huge roadblock in West's title chances on Saturday. The Bulldogs opened the contest by racing to a 19-4 lead after the opening eight minutes. Bettendorf coach Curtis Clark credited his team's zone defense with taking the Falcons out of the contest and snapping their eight-game win streak. We are getting better defensively, that's for sure, said Clark of his squad. We played zone for the entire game, and that's not something we have done. Clark said that the short prep after Friday's 63-36 victory over Central DeWitt and the matchup nightmares that West present led to that decision. He said that it helped his team slow down the running Falcons. The last five games, we were giving up 42 points per game, said Clark. That's four games in man and one game all zone. North Scott is riding a four-game win streak since a 76-74 loss at West, where the Falcons remain unbeaten this season. Class 4A's 7th-ranked Lancers are averaging 65.3 points per game, which will be tested this week against the top two defensive teams in the league. Last Friday's 84-62 road victory over Muscatine may have been a costly one for the Davenport North Wildcats. The Mac leaders moved to 15 2 in the and 12 0 in the league with the win, but junior Journey Houston hurt a knee in a non contact injury in the contest. North Coach Paul Rucker confirmed the injury over the weekend but said that she was still being evaluated. He offered no further information. The University of Iowa Comet is averaging 19.4 points per game, as is fellow junior Divine Barrage. Houston and Burrage are leading the Wildcats' rebounding efforts as well, averaging 8.9 and 8.8 boards per game. North has won 15 straight games after opening the season with two setbacks to top-rated Minnesota schools in a weekend gathering. North, which controls its own destiny in the MAC race, hosts Clinton on Tuesday and plays at Davenport West on Friday. The Wildcats are at second place Central DeWitt the following Tuesday before finishing the regular season with home games against North Scott and Davenport Central on February 8th and 9th. A serious injury, though, could be a huge factor in the Wildcats' bigger goals come tourney time. The basketball world is hoping for the best for the future Hawkeye. It must have been a heck of a show that Central DeWitt's Lauren Walker and North Scott's Allison Muller put on last week when their teams met in a MAC contest in DeWitt. So much so that at times, the scoreboard couldn't even keep up with their scoring exploits. Walker scored 32 points in leading the Sabres to a 57-52 victory. However, Muller did her best to answer, scoring 31. Walker, a 5'8 junior guard, made five of nine three-point attempts as she shot 11 of 20 from the th- field in the victory. Muller, a 5'10 sophomore combo guard, was 9 of 25 from the field with just one three-pointer but converted 12 of 13 free throws for her season-high explosion. They both put their teams on their backs and just went at it, said Central DeWitt coach Ron O'Brien. "Muller did a great job getting to the rim. We're fouling and she's making free throws. Lauren was just doing what Lauren does, making big plays for us and grabbing rebounds. Walker's 32 points were a season high. O'Brien was not sure if that was a career high or not, but it helped her move closer to the 1,000-point plateau. She sits at 917 with four regular season games left and at least one playoff contest. Pleasant Valley's Coy Kipper had quite a run snapped. The senior guard had back-to-back games of 30-plus points, scoring 30 in victory over North and 31 in a victory over Bettendorf. That run came crashing to a halt last Friday in the overtime loss to West. In a frustrating night, the pesky Falcons' defense held him to just four points on one of nine shooting. It was a rough offensive night for the Spartans. Taking out solid efforts from David Gorslein and Max Muslaski, the rest of the team was just 5 for 26 from the field as they shot 18 of 14, 18 of 48 overall. Still, Kipper leads the Spartans by averaging just four, just under 14 points per game. And that does it for what we can get to in sports today. And it also brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today. I'm Dale Finnegan, and my partner at the microphone has been Doug Kretzinger. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.